Welcome back to Behind Our Door. Hi, Nancy. Hi, Julie. Welcome back. We're here again. Yes, welcome back to Behind Our Door. We're so happy everybody's here. I know. It never gets old. I love, love doing this. I hope people are really hearing our message and we're reaching out to some great families out there and hopefully we're helping a few along the way. Yeah, I know. I've gotten some feedback, which is really rewarding that people are listening to these conversations and uh, and relating and getting some more understanding of what we talk about, their situations related to this. Yeah. Um, anyway, so how have you been? I've been well. Um, holidays were, you know, okay. We talked about that before. Yeah. I've been watching now more Netflix, Apple, everything, and... Uh, I was thinking last week, I finished the second season of The Morning Show. Oh my gosh, with, I just started watching oh, that. It's it's really good. It's uh, I enjoyed it at least. But the one, the one thing I thought about was, here you're watching this thinking that it's about, uh, you know, all of the... Uh, Anchors. Media, what goes on in TV and the behind the scenes. It's like, it's just uh, unbelievable. They do an amazing job at this portrayal yeah but the interesting thing was the and I don't want to be a spoiler for anyone who hasn't seen this but there is a character who plays the brother of Reese Witherspoon and he has bipolar disorder and um, alcoholism I believe but they really go into the mental health aspect of siblings and without giving away what happens at all with Reese Witherspoon character and and the brother, it's really a slice of sibling, uh, one caring for the other and or trying to, being able to and not being able to, um, that I think is really important for people to see. I, I feel like more and more when I watch these shows that have something like this, it's getting these these stories are stepping up to the plate with reality more than ever before, and I was really impressed with the way they put forth that brother sister relationship. I agree. I it's an education. That part alone is really really good for people to see. Yeah, in those situations. I haven't watched all of it like you have, but I'm definitely hooked. And the show in general is amazing. The acting is amazing. Um, but that specific storyline obviously hits close to home. And I just found, I find it so riveting just watching the dynamic between the brother and sister. Um, I think he's an alcoholic too. Yes, he's an alcoholic and has bipolar disorder, I believe. And maybe there was a drug addiction. I'm not, you know, but they, um, they really, it is such a realistic look at that situation. I I just um, was really, really impressed with that and hoping that people, that need to get something out of that slice of the show. Yeah. It's nice to see it's coming more and more to mainstream media. Mm-hmm. Um, so people learn how to understand it and that yeah. it's not so scary. It says so much about society today that these are being, you know, written into shows uh, that is just sort of everyday life. Yeah. We should have a whole show about that. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we should. A whole podcast. I think it would be really interesting. There's a lot... Of material out there, so mm-hmm. okay. Our, our recommendations, yes. <laughs> Julian and Nancy Netflix recommendations. Yes, right. A new twist to a new twist to behind our door. Yes, I am so thrilled to introduce our guest of today, Dr. Stephen Arkin. 
Uh, this man brings the definition of strength and courage to a new level, I must say. Uh, a little background, Dr. Arkin is currently a staff neurologist at Miami Valley Hospital in Dayton, Ohio, and an assistant professor at Wright State University. He is the former staff neurologist at St. Luke's of Kansas City for many years and at that time assistant professor of neurology at the University of Missouri. Uh, I could go on and on about Steve's success, his brilliance, and credentials, um, but one that we'll talk about today is his being the co-founder of a, a fabulous nonprofit organization called Speak Up. Um, I'll let Steve talk about the mission, but uh, it's a mental health organization, that, a mental health uh, nonprofit that was started uh, with the inspiration of, uh, of the foundation of, from the tragic loss of the Arkin's son, Jason, who died by suicide in 2015 on the campus of Northwestern University at the end of his junior year. Um, I met Steve also in that year, in the fall of 2015, as he reached out to the National Alliance on Mental Illness to join us on our walk and begin to advocate and educate um, in, in, during the grief experience, the grief of his son. Uh, this is where the courage and the strength comes in. I don't know how you and your family, Steve, could gather together just months later the energy and um, amazing advocacy that you kicked off right away. So with that, I, I welcome you, Steve. Uh, we're so happy to have you. Hi, Dr. Arkin. Thank you for being with us today. We're very excited um, to hear your story and hear your journey. And any information you have for us is, is always welcome. Great. I appreciate the opportunity and, uh, and being able to share my experience with you guys. And, uh, and certainly I've known Nancy for, as you said, six years and uh, things continue to steam forward in terms of what we are trying to accomplish, particularly in this time and age where we have an additional uh, focus uh, that is brought upon us by, by COVID. Yeah, I was thinking the same thing. COVID has really changed the game for mental health. It certainly has, and I think that uh, this is a co-pandemic, really. It's a mental health that occurs uh, not only in people that have COVID, but also mental health workers and uh, health workers in general. Uh, so I think it's a very important time to really reflect upon uh, being able to help everybody out and be able to listen to what's really happening because the fallout and burnout, uh, the potential that's happening right now as we speak is, is tremendous. I agree with you. Whether I'm not sure if Nancy had told you, but I'm a, I'm a first responder. So during COVID, I was out there every day working and the real fear of getting the virus, not understanding it, not knowing its manifestation, not necessarily having the right protection was very overwhelming, not for my just for myself, but for our, our families as well. Um, some of us had to isolate away from our families because we were out in the field. So just as being um, in healthcare, it, it was very similar, and it, it puts extra stress, and it brings out a lot of different mental health issues. Absolutely, and in particularly in our kids, and that's what we're going to talk about it here in a bit, but in terms of our mission is to really support and help out uh, middle schoolers and high schoolers in terms of how 
they deal with a normal life in, in school, but uh, certainly over that past year or so, uh, now getting a little bit better when you talk about isolation, that's one of the biggest problems that we have in mental health is uh, being able to deal with things in conjunction with other people, but particularly when you feel so isolated and you don't have that support system of people right in your face. So, Steve, why don't you tell, talk to our audience, um, tell a little bit about your story and, uh, and speak up. I mean, I could talk about a million things with you, but um, like we're discussing with this whole time, this day and age, uh, the isolation of adolescents and college kids, a uh, whole different thing. It's so rough, and they're back in school now face-to-face, but even that, you know, it really has been a game-changer. Uh, what, what's the – talk about Speak Up on your, and the mission and who it's focused towards. Or how did you get okay, there? So how did you get to Speak Up? Let's start there. Well, we can, we can start with a story of a kid, and that's our son, who, uh, who basically – seemed to be at the top of his game, uh, certainly uh, academically blessed, not only in terms of mathematics and science, but also in terms of discussions and being able to uh, have that type of kind of that all-round look where he, he knew where he was going, what he was doing. And underneath all of that was this underlying uh, condition. And we kind of suspected something might be going on because he was never – really happy with uh, being good. He had to be great. He had to be perfect. And perfectionism was uh, what he basically told us in letters that we looked at after he died, that uh, he was not only uh, a perfectionist, but uh, felt that people were laughing at him if he wasn't perfect. And that struck his anxiety and his depression. And even though he was able to understand what other people we're doing the same situations and he's able to actually console people on their mental illnesses because he understood what was going on in their brains because of what was happening on in his brain. And he actually told us about his depression when he was 12 years old. I was just going to ask, yeah, ask you how old. What, yeah, what age did yeah. this start at his perfectionism? Well, he, he, he was able to tell us not only that it started at 12 years old, but that he had been thinking about and had flashes of suicidal ideation back when he was 10 years old. So uh, what happened is that yeah he was at a um, he was at school and they had a program and the program was talking about being open and being able to discuss mental what age, health. What age are you talking about? At, this? That was at, that's when he was twelve years old. Uh-huh. So that's when he came back to our house uh, and in the car he he kind of went to his room and, and he wasn't really talking at all and. My wife, well, got to his room and, and asked him what was going on. And, and he said, you know, that, uh, that thing that you had me go to today, they were talking about me. And that was our first time that we had ever heard that. And, and that was, uh, that had to be shocking. A, a, an Very shocking. And what happened then is then we went, uh, full boat. I mean, we found whatever we could to try to help him out. And, and in the end, he actually, uh, he actually lasted for nine years. Uh, on certain medications, uh, psychotherapy, uh, magnetic stimulation. We had to actually take him out of school at Northwestern after his sophomore year, and uh, and then he uh, had trouble towards the spring of 2015 at the end of his junior year. He was in electrical engineering. He was very excited about going into artificial intelligence. So he had it all going on, and he was able to do uh, lectures himself, 
he was actually uh, in the an Optimist Club competition. Uh, ironically, Optimist Club. Uh, he actually won that competition on the state of Kansas level. So uh, yeah, so so everything seemed to be going well on the outside, but not so well on the inside. And as you guys probably remember back in 2015 is that it wasn't really on the front page of any newspaper, that's for sure. Uh, And there was a lot of stigma attached to all of that. Mm -hmm. So what we had was a situation. And myself, a neurologist, my wife's also a neurologist, and we actually work in the same uh, location here. Uh, We both uh, work in the hospital. And uh, what we decided to do after that complete shock and grief uh, was to try the best we can to help other people, as Jason would. And that's what we learned at a funeral. At a funeral, we were at uh, you know the receiving line, and uh, towards the end of the line, uh, there was a Boy Scout. He was in the Boy Scouts uh, in Kansas City. And uh, one of the kids that I thought at the time was probably going to drop out of scouts. I mean, he had ADHD. He probably was bipolar, and uh, and he was feigning illness. And I was the medical director for our troop, and, and was going to the you know, going to the health facility all the time with him. And what I learned is that this kid, now 18 years old, uh, was in the back of the line, and he told his parents that uh, Jason was the reason that he stayed in scouts. And the reason they stayed at Scouts was Jason went into his tent one day uh, during summer camp and sat him down and, and just talked about things for an hour and just oh. listened to him. Oh, so that was the amazing. inspiration. That... that was the inspiration for getting something going where we could inspire kids to look out for each other. And drop and the And not be quiet, right? I love that. And that's what Speak Up's all about. I love that. Um, so Speak Up is actually stands for suicide prevention, but more importantly, education and awareness for kids. That's the Speak, and then United Partners is the Up, and having them speak up and be able to defend for each other and watch out for each other. So, so when you were putting together Speak Up, and um, I think you said you were you're gearing this towards middle school. Uh, was it middle school kids or how, how old? A little it's younger than college. School, school. Middle school, high yeah, middle school. school. So, middle school and high school. Mm-hmm. So how did you decide to start there? I mean, did you think, yeah. uh, you know, Jason had this, you know, obviously had his, you know, tragic ending when he was in college. So, you know, you're a no- neurologist, an expert on the brain. Is that how you came to the conclusion that it was good to start at middle school and... Or... Exactly, exactly. Because that's what we were—that's what we were kind of uh, trying to decide. We we wanted to draw the net uh, open enough so it would be manageable, and and be able to get to the people that were most at risk. And what happens in neurology is that the brain actually comes to the completion around the age of twenty-two or so. And what happens is that about uh, about half of people that are going to have depression or anxiety manifest themselves somewhat before they're 14 years old, which is pretty incredible. And so what we want to do was we wanted to get to these people before it was completely formulated in their mind. And while there's still some relative control from a parental standpoint. So we wanted to prepare people for the transition, not only to college, but perhaps to military or to work if they didn't go to college. 
adulthood. With that time of separation and potential isolation, because people who do have the depression, anxiety, bipolar, uh, they really don't coincide very well in terms of living post high school or post being in the environment of that supportive environment of the family. And all of a sudden they're out to fend for themselves. And we thought it was very important to be able to lay the, the foundation and the groundwork for that successful transition, the time frame being high school. And then we found out from middle schools, we we're finding more and more tragedy going on within our middle school system in our community of people that were dying by suicide or having these significant changes in terms of their interpersonal skills, we would go to the middle schools as well. So that's what we do. We go district by district and trying to formulate the, this type of program. And do you have do you have speakers that are peer led and teachers or who who makes who's who are the educators? So the educators, what we used over time is we used a, a UBU program to try to tell people they're they're okay the way they are. And then most recently, we developed uh, in conjunction what is with that? What is program. that program? I'm sorry to cut you off, but what is that? Oh, that's okay. UB, so UBU you... was, was basically was basically using uh, different like decals and posters, and and the students themselves were developing videos to basically talk about inclusion rather than exclusion, and then in way indirectly helping out mental illness by by bringing everybody together. So you can you know that you can have mental illness and still be the quarterback of the football team and being the band member, being the theatrical person. And all those people, although they're very separate in terms of what they're gearing themselves to be, there's a common denominator. Each one of them still has a 20 to 25 percent incidence of depression, mental illness uh, within that, that spectrum. So I think that that was uh, that was a very important process. So that was the first thing that we tried to do is basically go into the programming with ways the students and the educators can kind of formulate that type of programming for awareness. Because back in 2015, there was no front page of the newspaper. There was no going on NPR or, you know, in, in, in a way, over time, we were able to even be you know, top feature on, on 10 o'clock news, as it turned out to be over a, a couple of years and being in print and trying to keep it from being on page six to being front line and to measure up consistently on par with physical illness because emotional mental illness is the same and in some ways even more dangerous than some physical illnesses. And we want to normalize, like Nancy says, get the stigma out of it and being able to make it more of a common discussion. And do you see, I mean, these organizations, something like Speak Up is making just the, the biggest difference, I, I feel like. Um, thank heavens for organizations like yours. Do you see, when you look at having started way back, changes in, in these school, in these kids, in schools, in, um, in just stigma? Do you see that, do you th- see that things are changing? Well, I think that they are. I think what happens now is that years ago, if somebody was absent from school, there was always that. So what happened to you? You know, you didn't come back with a with a cast on your leg or, you know, you can't, they're not talking about having diabetes or something like that. But you've been gone from school for two weeks. You come back and you get that stigma because you if you are going to talk to about it, you're going to say, well, I was away because I was in a mental institution because of my depression. And the way that kids look upon that was, 
with the same. And uh, I think that the changes that we see now is that the students, particularly the ones that are in our programs, and we're out in about 40 to 50 schools now in the Kansas City area and beyond, is that now people will come back and they'll, they treat those kids, their peers, as, uh, as having real illness. And I think that was the key to the whole process is that uh, people with mental illness was always stigmatized to be, oh, you're just weak and you just have to buck up. And it's all, you know, they try to compare it to themselves and, and, they, and there was really no comparison. But now, uh, especially through our newest program called Sources of Strength, which is more of a peer-led uh, organization and, uh, and discussions regarding the ability to normalize mental illness. It's, it's fantastic. Oh, that's so amazing. Just absolutely fantastic. I've heard you um, say something before. I don't know if I read it or I watched it on YouTube, or um, but you were talking about that there are two types of stigma. What does what does that mean? Well, the main types of stigma are, are social stigma and then personal stigma. So social stigma is how people react to somebody who has mental illness. So back in the day, uh, people thought that people that had uh, mental illness, there was it was basically a personality flaw. It wasn't a real organic illness. It was something to do with the way that they were brought up. It was with the way that uh, they react to certain situations uh, that they just don't have the persona to be able to deal with normal life. And their failure of dealing with life was not really an illness itself. And then people were cascaded. I mean, people were not being able to, to marry into. They wouldn't want to move next to somebody who had depression, uh, that type of thing. And that translated into personal stigma. So if enough people say that to you, then you internalize it. And once you internalize it, you get on this downward spiral to think that, uh, you know, what else is going to happen that's wrong? So a normal, quote, normal response to getting uh, a bad grade on a test is, okay, well, I'll get them next time. But uh, a person with mental illness will have to get that bad score and say, well, you know, that was a self-fulfilling prophecy, and uh, yeah, and they're scared of the next test, even though it's a month away, because they know they're going to fail again. And that's the, the personal stigma, stigma of what does happen. They internalize what other people are saying, and, you know, you know, they're right. And that's what Jason said in his essays, basically, was saying that people were, were, were laughing at him because he was not perfect. That's interesting that you say that, because I, I have a son who suffers from bipolar, and at a young age, he too would tell me he was the black sheep of the family. And I never really understood what that meant until you broke it down like that. Um, I Obviously, I would tell him what an amazing child he was. He was not the black sheep of the family. Nobody was viewing him as that. But it was this internal voice that kept repeating it to him, that he just was never going to be good enough. Yeah, and that, and that's the I think that's the transition is is it goes from other people saying bad things about you to then the, that person's perception that their brain is controlling their activities, and that's what that's why the neurology comes in, and that's why hopefully I feel that we, my wife and I, do understand the way that neurotransmitters work, and that they can't be turned off, and certain things like anxiety are basically because there's this ongoing um, surge of adrenaline and, and, and people who have anxiety disorders can't turn it off. And what we try to do is, is regulate that to the point that at least the outside influences does not uh, catapult that into 
a major problem and, and self-injury. On that, on that note, when you look at the scientific side of this, um, asking you as a neurologist, do you think that when you're looking at that age group, middle school, high school, do you think that we're closer to blood tests, some way of genetic testing of, of the way the brain is wired question. and, yeah. you know, finding out earlier on through just, you know, annual exams with these kids that they may have some, um, some sort of predisposed physical issue? Yeah. Well, where is science at with that? Yeah, there's a lot of points to to, uh, to try to unpack there, but uh, I think the key is to identify people as early as possible. And the important part of that, I think, is now that we can destigmatize that type of testing because there are ways through inventories of testing personality, uh, depression, anxiety, to try to identify people as early as possible. Then what you can do is you can combine that with genetic testing, and you can combine that more importantly. Now we have tools of imaging studies, functional imaging studies, that show that if somebody is is picked out as a potential issue with mental illness, they can go and get this functional MRI or spec scan that uses the different what we call energy utilization uh, in certain parts of the brain. And not only can that identify who's at risk or who might have already developed symptoms that are consistent with those mental illnesses, but more importantly is to define what type of modality, be it medication, being electricity, being magnetism, who is going to respond to which medication, who's going to respond to which other modality, and not to give somebody something that obviously is not going to work. Yeah, so wait, so, so this is being this is being done now, or this is? I mean, that's that was amazing. I mean, yeah, it's no, unbelievable it science. It is being done. Yeah. There it was no done. test what, what? twenty years ago yeah. that yeah. that I recall. Although right. my son did go through some um, various uh, studies with brain scans, which mm-hmm. I'm I'm assuming right. is is what you're kind of referring to a little bit now. There's kind of a a mapping. Right, and mapping, and, and, that's, and that's what we're talking about, is mm-hmm. there's certain neurotransmitters that are in various subsections of the brain, so there's different nuclei. I can get very uh, technical about this. But the <laughs> I'm main, sure you, I'm the sure you can. Stone, you'll lose me for sure. <laughs> I'm sure you can. But, but the, main, the main center where everything comes through is called the amygdala, and then what happens is, is that's our reaction perception of what life experiences really are. And uh, what happens is there's different even subsections within that nucleus that defines how that information is processed. And so uh, there's certain transmitters that we use in medication, like serotonin or epinephrine and dopamine, and all of those things are combined from a biomedical standpoint. But then what we can see is where's the hot point if we want to use magnetic stimulation or deep brain stimulation, and that's what that's what the exciting vagal nerve stimulation what type of modality is going to help. There's certain blocks that we can do that can modulate your response, the person's response to an external stimulus. So most people will say, okay, the the train is coming my way. I'm at the stop sign here. Some people will determine that their perception is that train is going to go around the the guard and actually hit them. That's how they're they're monitored or how they're wired. 
and that's an extreme. But but that's actually what happens. Is they have this yeah. distorted, they have this distorted response to a normal stimulus or an exaggerated response. I mean, if you, if someone's coming at you tonight, you want to run away. But you know that fear that somebody is around the corner in the middle of the day in a in a very nice neighborhood is not really a, a great thing to be having old over your head right now, right? Right. So those right. are the, that's the way the brain can actually misconstrue what otherwise would be normal experience to turn that into an abnormal, and then you're on highest alert at all times. What that translates into is if, if that happens over and over and over again, that can actually lead to, to problems in the way that you deal with things that aren't really happening. So that's where that's where different types of mental illness gets in the way of normal function and actually can be dangerous if it's in the wrong situation. Do you believe that um, environment plays a role in that, or do you think it's genetics, or do you, I mean, personally and professionally, I mean, you have both aspects, which is is not so right. common. Well, I think a lot of it, a lot of it is genetic predisposition. And what happens is we know that 20 to 25% are basically engineered to have some type of mental illness, uh, dysfunction in our mental wellness. And it's the way the environment kicks in and the way that we can handle the environment or basically tone down environmental influences that will determine how your genetic predisposition manifests itself. So that the people, there, there's a terminology called high-functioning depression or high-functioning anxiety. I mean, a lot of people that are very high up in the world, uh, professionally, athletes, musicians, uh, businessmen, politicians, officers. they have it, but they can control it, and they can control the way the environment influences, and that may be through medication, maybe through support systems that are not through medications, even through psychotherapy, to basically downregulate your response to what otherwise could be very harmful to you. So I think that it's the way that you function within your genetic structure uh, which actually can save people. And that's what the reason that we introduced this evidence-based programming to try to down-regulate the environmental influences uh, that can cause great harm, particularly in people that are more impulsive. That's where the kids come in. Yeah. That that's what I was just going to say. The it. age is so age is yeah. so key here. Um, mm -hmm. it's, yes, right, it's... the age and, and what's happening in the world. I mean, you go through midlife mm -hmm. crisis. You go through, I mean, in, in, in terms of other things, business failures, uh uh, social relationship failures. Mm -hmm. they Even the are stress of going to college. Yeah, and look at and look at what these right. kids are living through right now. The pandemic. Um, I right. mean, these things that nine eleven starting. You know, way back, they just are seeing seeing the world through different glasses that are. It's really really and tough. Here, and here's the and here's another major problem. Uh, before we we kind of close down a little bit, is not only environment of what physically happening too, but also social networking and then perceived changes through anonymity through social con through social networking. Remember back about ten years ago, maybe twelve years ago, where even the social networking said, you know what? Don't give your kids cell phones before they're thirteen or whatever age yes. it was. You know, yes. don't let them go on this and that uh, before they're able to be able to understand what social network is all about. And the type of bullying that's going on was used to be physical when I was growing up, but right. now it's, it's through it's, it's through anonymity through social networking. Secretive, actually, you don't know what your kids are being exposed to, and well, they used to have right. to wait for you to come to school to bully you, or mm -hmm. they right. would call your phone. But now 
they can get their 25 social media friends to do it with you, right? Or, or, have, tech, or have chat rooms or do yeah. a you know, texting at 3 in the morning and all of a sudden wake you up, that type of thing. I mean, the key there is to recognize that that's happening. So we need help on all fronts. Yeah, so we thought definitely. that going through the school system, I mean, a lot of people depend on the school system to actually be a uh, co-monitor, uh, being able to have that support system outside the home, because that's where a lot of the, the dangers rise is within the school system itself. So does something like Speak Up reach to the parents and teachers, too? It's, it's about the peer. I mean, I know it's a lot of reaching right to these kids themselves, but... Um, is it does it involve the parents a lot too? Right. So what we educating we did, the parents. The front, yeah, particularly on the front side of what we had is we were able to bring in uh, lecturers um, we, from all over the country actually, and um, That's I'm the name of the San Francisco guy all of a sudden, but uh, the guy who jumps off the bridge uh, oh. came in to talk to several districts. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. Right. That, he's, and he's, um, he's great. Yeah. 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 So, so that, we have we had local and we had national and wow. we brought and, and and we had within the school day, we had um, conferences uh, within the students like in the in the gymnasium, uh, and then we would break out into the, the different rooms and then to talk about things. And we also had um, and I still do uh, lectures for certain groups of people. I mean, I had uh, Asian American parents. Uh, first generation who is very eye-opening to them about what's happening to their kids <laughs> and yeah. uh, and talking to uh, Boy Scout troops, Girl Scout troops, and, uh, and various uh, school ages and community groups uh, to, to basically involve parents. So this is what we're going to do, and that's what we do with the, with the programming is to, uh, is to basically want to involve the parents, not to have them be blindsided and say that we're doing this independent of you. We have to do that in concert with uh, with the parents and, and with the teachers and the administrators yeah. to be able to uh, to buy into the program and to be able to understand that this is not to you know not to to shame anybody to say you know you're not doing it right at home we're going to bring it to the school and then we're going to change things around at school and that's going to be the big difference. yeah it has to be it has, it has to be one world home. it has to be one world yeah. yeah I think it's really interesting that you say that about the Asian American group. It's so um, a whole nother level of this stigma is cross-cultural. It's so different with all of the different cultures. And this is America. There's everybody living here that the parents have to be um, all thinking different things. So it's great that you reach out to to uh, the different perspectives. Well, I think I think the big key there is that you do have. I remember growing up as you had your um, your academic groups. I mean, I was on math team and computer club, and then you have your uh, the sporting group that was into athletics, and then you had your your band group. And it seemed that there was not that much uh, uh, mixture of ideas and of support. And I think what uh, we do with our programming through Speak Up is we basically bring these different players together and I think when somebody who's not athletic can understand that somebody who is athletic is going to talk about their depression anxiety and we actually had a professional uh, Kansas City Chief that talked at one of our speak up walks about his history and how he would have to go to the locker room and not feel like he didn't have couldn't even come out of the locker room afterwards uh, in between in between halves to, to actually perform because of the overriding anxiety and and how that normalizes them to think, well, my, my gosh, it doesn't happen in 
professional people. It doesn't happen in people that have success, mm -hmm. but it does. I think one of the stigma is that Absolutely. it only happens in the low socioeconomic groups. And one of the reasons why my wife and I decided not to be quiet about this is the fact that we wanted people to understand that here, here you have, and this is you know the saddest part of all, but it's it's true. You have two neurologists who are bringing up this kid who is number one in his class and is getting a 3.56 at Northwestern, and still it's not good enough because his brain is not wired in a way that says that that's acceptable. And that's why we have to normalize or attempt to normalize and support each other that there, there is, if, if people in that situation are giving you messages, verbal or nonverbal messages, that things are not going right, that things are taking a turn, is that you identify these people, and once they're identified, you don't shun them. You mm -hmm. support them. You yes. bring them in. You bring yes. them into the fold. And you bring them into the fold to not say, you know what, you, why are you doing this? You're, you're doing great. But in their mind, they're not doing great. Right. So Can basically I... what you have to do is bring them in. Yeah. Can I ask you from a personal perspective, how did how did that journey with your son play out? I mean, you were saying what an amazing kid he was, but he had this like wanted to be perf perfect all the time. How did that um, manifest itself over time as parents, not professionals? Although having um, you know doctors as parents has to be a, a little different in itself, having that expectation. Yeah. Well, one of the things that we set forth uh, with our kids right away, and, and Jennifer is alive and thriving. She's going to be 26 next month and is doing uh, biomedical engineering and designing custom needs using MRI technology. Oof. And one of the things that, yeah, and one of the things that, a real, a real that we slacker. Said, <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So, uh, but what's interesting is she has a little bit of anxiety, but one of the interesting things and, and one of the heartwarming things, because we, um, as we were driving to Northwestern uh, on the day that he was dying, is uh, and that we had to drive from Kansas City to Chicago, which is about a nine-hour drive, and uh, and we were checking in, and it looked actually somewhat promising that he might uh, it might survive. He had seizures, he had overdose on, uh, on prescription, his own prescription medications. And, and then he took a turn for the worse, and we had to actually stop. And one of my colleagues from Kansas City, from Chicago, was visiting Chicago at the time and uh, was with him and basically told us that he was, there was no chance. And one of the things we asked our daughter was, you know, if this, yeah, if this is ever happens to you, you're going to tell us about it, right? And she goes, um, I will. And just so you know, I'm not Jason, meaning that she did not feel that she was in the same situation. But again, mm -hmm. we said it was extremely important that if that changed at all at any time that you would tell us. And then we made sure along talking about our journey is that they had safe havens. They had parachutes. They still do. I mean, we told him and we took him out of school after his sophomore year because uh, he was having some problems and, and was basically um, not getting out of his room and not socializing at all. So that's what we saw, and that's what the nonverbal stuff is all about, is not only that they say it, but that they do things. They isolate themselves. They uh, become you physically they, they, see they, it. They eat differently, sleep differently, that type of thing. So so that's what we were experiencing, that, that roller coaster ride where he would have incredible highs. I mean, one thing that happened was, we took him out of school after his sophomore year, and he actually had to miss two finals that he had to make up in the fall 
he ate those finals once he got back into the swing of things. We did something different over the summer. Some outpatient therapy and magnetic stimulation was a tremendous help to him. And uh, he did fantastic the first two trimesters uh, back in his junior year and then kind of fell apart in, his, in the last quarter. And what, and I think what, what we you, really... I'm sorry. Yeah. What what did that look like in the in the last semester? I mean, did you did you know how are parents supposed to know? Was there a, was there a trigger that really set him on a bad path? Yeah. Well, here here's the thing. It was it was twofold. Number one is there was a trigger, and that in junior is an engineering small group, the Northwestern, so it was a small school, so small groups of people, and one of the people was just not did not really fit in with his persona in like a six person study group so so that was going and, and he did show some things he had dropped classes but the people who knew they dropped classes were his uh his advisor the advisor actually talked to him uh, about three weeks before he died and he could have told us about it he uh, didn't did he tell you he dropped the classes at that time jason didn't jason didn't no. did not mm-hmm. and the no, advisor obviously didn't tell you because they're no. because he's an adult no. i mean right? they, they yeah, they, they told us about it when we they had had a debriefing mm-hmm. session that you know the day after he died and actually the vice president of medical affairs as a psychologist and what was interesting and sad about that particular time frame and I don't know if you remember back in the mid teens as there was this tremendous number of people in colleges across and particularly in like Ivy League like six or seven per campus were dying per year by suicide and and yeah, we, I remember it. it was. And it was the fourth one in three weeks at Northwestern. Yeah. <clears throat> so, uh, so that was, uh, we're trying to figure out, without, it's not to penalize the other students to say, you know, why didn't you get this right? Because it's a community effort. And part of the community is to be able to have the tools in the first place, right? Right. So and do you- the, key there, the key there was to have uh, a situation where people were on the lookout for each other. I mean, we had called a couple weeks before and the, uh, and basically had to find his uh, his resident advisor to actually check up on him and make him call us. So, yeah, we knew something might be up. Yeah. But we also thought that it was under control because he did a fantastic job of the facade, hiding it. And yeah. even though we had that inner that inner knowledge of it, is that he, when he was on, he was on. Yeah. And, when, and what happens in these people, in some of these people, is that the switch can turn in a hurry. Yeah. And the key is to be able to, to instill the confidence in the person that you know and the kid to be able to tell you when it's happening. And it's, it's crazy. The way that it came down, I mean, some of the people that were around that actually had the insight and had the personal experience of mental illness, that they would have, they would have knocked the door down to get them if they knew what was going on. Yeah, absolutely. So he, he didn't let us know. Right. And I appreciate you sharing that so candidly with us because I think a, a lot of loved ones and caregivers and families and parents struggle with that. Like, I should have known, I could have known, why didn't I do something different? Why didn't I intervene? Why didn't I? And like you're saying, it's, it, it, you know, the people who are closest to him maybe could have spoke up, would have that have changed the scenario? Maybe not. But that's kind of what your organization is talking about. Let's speak up. So Let's we, stop keeping mm-hmm. it so quiet. Let's talk about it. There's no shame Absolutely. in any of it. Jason would be proud. Absolutely. There's no doubt you're making a difference. There's just no doubt about it. He'd Agreed. Be, mm-hmm. He'd be really proud of you. Um, yeah. You know, just yeah. what you're no, doing you know, is... And, and what's interesting, well, 
what's interesting is, is my wife uh, Karen always uh, after after says why why do why do we go out particularly me why do you go out and continue to like take the scab off the wound type of situation and and I tell her that you know that and then he she says that you know Jason was quiet he did things behind the scenes he didn't he wasn't the frontliner and you know he would listen to everything and he'd be able to understand everything. And take it all in. But that's the important part. The important part is about active listening mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and being able to understand not only what's spoken, but to watch what's happening in front of you and make sure that you understand what's going on and not be afraid to ask that question. Are mm-hmm. you okay? And be prepared and know what to do if they say, no, I'm not yeah. okay. Yeah, I was, I was at a high school forum um, outside of Chicago, there was a high school that had a rash of suicides years ago. And so they had a big, you know, town hall meetings over this and a panel of people that were doctors and parents and and saying, you know, what is the best way to go at this? They're, you know, all freaking out about their kids. It was really a horrific time. And the main question, the main point was, if you ask your kids... <laughs> how they are, ask if they're thinking of suicide, and listen, really listen. So I, I think that your speak, speak up is right in there. I mean, it's, it's making a difference. And what's interesting is that uh, identifying people that are at risk doesn't lead to suicide. It's a misidentification and not knowing who's at risk that leads to those types of problems. And it's just basically not having a forum for kids to come together. So what we were told at the time was that if kids came together and had all, that they would you know, form suicide packs. It's like, no, they don't. They want to understand each other so that they can help each other out. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Normalize actually, it. Again, because actually kids in college want to survive. They, they, don't do. go there, they don't go there to, to die. They go there to, to change the world. And then particularly in, in smaller universities, but even in large universities, there is this togetherness. And, and that is the basis of how people are going to succeed. And they can't succeed if they're always competing against themselves and, and, and phasing each other out. And I think what we discovered was that congeniality. And, and from what I know is that it did translate into better success at Northwestern. So it, it in, any, in any event, the legacy of Jason is good there. Yeah, it's there's there are big things happening, and thanks to you and your wife, um, we thank you for being on the show. We thank yeah. you for all of your energy, and like I said at the beginning, strength and courage. I don't know where you come from. I, I mean, agree. You are, you are really something. To think that you started this whole advocacy and education just months after losing your son through that grief is, um, I, have goose, I have goosebumps thinking about it. I just I do don't too. know how, how you do it, but uh, the world's a better place for it, so we can't thank you enough. I can't thank you well, enough. You guys are, are very, very kind, and, and the way I look at it is that it's a form of my therapy. <laughs> oh, very true. <laughs> it's, 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 a way, it's a way to, to figure out a way that, uh, that hopefully, hopefully people will listen Yes. And I, I think that uh, it, it can get better. I mean, that, that's the thing. In that, in that moment, you think, oh, my gosh, how re- 
really good at the fan, play the what if game and, and everything that goes with it. And no, you have to, and to, for my eyes, I had to, to turn it around into something different. Agreed. Yes. Thank you, Dr. Arkin. Thank Cannot you. Also. Thank you enough. So Take yeah. good care. Thank you. All right. Bye. Take care, guys. Bye. Bye. Don't forget to follow us on social media. We are on Twitter and Facebook and Snapchat, um, Instagram. And please, please download, like, and follow our podcast so you can keep up with our upcoming episodes. We have some amazing guests. We have some amazing conversations. You will not want to miss it. If you or someone you know is in crisis struggling with mental illness, you can call the National Suicide Hotline at 1-800-273-8255 or the NAMI Helpline at 1-800-950-6264.